Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast. My name is Nathan, your host, and this podcast is to help you learn from the people and businesses on a mission to do things differently. Today's guest is Hugh Thomas, co-founder and CEO of Ugly Drinks. Now, there's every chance you've seen their cans of sugar-free, sparkling water jump out at you from the supermarket shelves. But it's not just their standout branding which you should be paying attention to here. Ugly are on a mission to disrupt the soft drinks market, which is predominantly really sugary drinks doing irreparable damage to millions of people's health around the world. And they're also out to expose a few other ugly truths along the way. As soon as you hear Hugh speak, you can tell he's such a passionate and committed founder. If you like what you hear in this episode, please do hit subscribe and leave a rating or a review in your podcast app. I would really appreciate that. Let's dive straight in. Hugh, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. It's great to speak with you. Thanks for having me, Nathan. It's, uh, It's great to chat to you today. So we'll kick off by asking you the question we start all of our discussions with, and that is, what's the wrong you want to write? So yeah, it's uh, I guess I talk in the context of ugly, which is you know what pour my life and soul into on a daily basis. And ugly is a flavored sparkling water business and a water business in general. Now we have multiple water-based products, and we want to make water fun, and we want to make people drink more water uh, versus other bad stuff. And I think that's kind of really the wrong that I've wanted to write for a long time now is that when you really look at healthy food and beverage um at scale um it's the cheap nasty stuff that's making people sick um and it's the stuff that you know regular people who are you know watching the pennies watching the pounds um you know kind of picking up unhealthy stuff because it's cheap and affordable and that's always what's riled me i mean it particularly riled me when it came to soda and i think when you look at the the biggest brands in the world um the soda companies are up there they dominate marketing they sponsor global sporting events. They have TV advertisements for young, healthy, happy people smiling and enjoying themselves. But at the end of the day, people are drinking, you know, tens of grams of sugar on a daily basis, thousands of calories that they don't need to drink. And when you drink your calories and you drink sugar, it just hits your uh, body so much faster. You're not digesting a can of soda. It goes straight to your body, straight to your pancreas. It spikes your insulin. It causes weight gain and type 2 diabetes. In the US, where I live, we have 100 million obese Americans. Um, And in the UK, I think the percentage of the population is similar. And the number of people on the way to type 2 diabetes is is just a huge kind of tidal wave that's coming. Um, And that's the wrong that I wanted to write. I feel like people should have access to healthier food at a cheaper price that tastes great, but isn't premium isn't preaching people to be healthy it's just an easy switch and it doesn't break the bank and like that's always been the the kind of driver for me and it's really about democratizing healthier food and beverage um how can you kind of take the bad stuff out but keep the taste the same and the price point the same and then have brands that people love and engage with so that's what fires us up and um the reason we're called ugly and again i'll keep keep going but there's a quote by George Orwell, which is a t- in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Um, when we started the company, we had, and again, it's changed this weekend, uh, fingers crossed, but the president changing in America, and we had um, 
Brexit happening in the UK as well, and this whole idea of fake news, um, and like this older generation where soda was a thing, and younger people just wanting to know what they're drinking and eating. Like, there's no need for fake news when it comes to food. If you turn around the pack, you should know what you're eating. Um, and so that's why we wanted to tell the ugly truth, and that's why we became ugly ultimately, is to stand against kind of the status quo of the way big food and beverages be marketed at people, because um, it feels wrong when there's a third of Americans are fat. <laughs> it's it's not good, um, and it just feels like you know the unhappiness that causes people is significant, um, and so that's kind of what fires me up. That's that's amazing and very well put. And I I think, as you say, that the the mass marketing that those soda brands started doing in the previous century yes. is still is still just fundamentally impacting most people's behavior today. It's just like that glamorization of those products is still just very much in our mindset. It's traveled through generations. That's it. And I, I'm talking about soda, but as well, if you drink a, you drink a smoothie or an orange juice that are all also owned by those big companies, you're also consuming a lot of sugar and sweetener. And nobody needs to drink like 10 oranges in one bottle. <laughs> nobody needs that much sugar. If I asked you to eat 10 oranges, you would struggle. And so what Ugly was all about was like, well, what can you drink if you can't drink any of these things? It's like water, but often water is kind of boring. Um, and too often now it's in plastic bottles and it's shipped from tropical islands, springs in Scandinavia, mountain ranges in the Alps. And it's like, why is somebody in London drinking a plastic bottle of water from a South Pacific island? Makes no sense at all. So we decided to make water fun by adding flavor and carbonation, nothing else. And then we put it in a recyclable format. And that's as simple as it is. But in reality, that is, you know, trying to take water to people who've not been drinking enough of it. Um, my mum being one example who um, pretty much I realized when I was like 25, had, I'd never seen her drink a glass of water. She essentially lives on cups of tea. So we now have her drinking at least a few cans of ugly a week. So making progress um a success then but but you know you know a lot of people are dehydrated right and dehydration and kind of uh, getting hydration in the wrong ways is a big issue for a lot of people and um and so you know that's similar with school kids as well we just felt that you know how can you how can you get all that marketing from soda brands how can you fight against that with something that's fun and cool and people actually want to pick up without thinking oh i'm making a boring healthy decision here which is often how you feel making healthier choices. I was watching uh, Educating Greater Manchester on the TV last night and the school had banned all sugary drinks from all the vending machines and the canteens and stuff and a black market sparked <laughs> you, with kids just selling LucasAids and all sorts of stuff. Like Which tells you how... Place. But and, and all those kids should probably be pushed to go into careers that they probably won't end up in, right? Like That's something else I'm passionate about. Um... But, you know, there's always gonna, kids are always going to want sweet stuff. I think that's a reality. And banning sweet stuff, again, anything that's banned, people are going to want to rebel against, right? So for us, it was like, how can you kind of make it cool for that generation where they no longer need to run that black market? Um, but sugar is addictive, so I understand that market's always going to be there, right? Um, but, but, you know, I'm sure you'd, you'd see with school kids, concentration levels and all those things being very different, um, and uh, just generally, you know, you think about families across the UK, 
soda is a multi-billion dollar category in the UK, and in the US it's in the tens of billions. You're talking like billions of consumption occasions a year for families, regular families around the kitchen table at dinner, drinking two liters of soda. It's just not something that I feel should be something we're still doing in 20, 30, 40 years time, the same way we now look at smoking differently. Um, for me, it feels the same. And uh, yeah, I think you've done a great job there of spelling out like the scale of the the scale of the problem. When, when did you have that moment when you thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into this? Yeah, so I, I, I'm I'm gonna commit to trying to solve this. No, it's a great question, and and I guess um, so. Joe, my co-founder, and I, we we were both working in beverage, so we were working at Vita Coco, a coconut water company, which was a healthier beverage. Um, and so we were kind of getting in the business. This was in our very early 20s. But also my mum is, a, ner- is a, a nurse who specializes in diabetes. And Joe's sister at the time actually worked for a diabetic charity. So long before Jamie Oliver and the sugar tax and things like that, we were working in beverage, learning about how liquids impact health. We obviously coconut water with electrolytes, all these things. And at the same time, we were just recognizing that consumers wanted healthier beverages and less sugar and drinking less sugar. And so we thought, well, Actually, you know, even if you drink juices and coconut waters and smoothies, they're still kind of very high in sugar and the sugar hits your body so fast you can't deal with it. Um, and talking to my my mum in particular, it's like, well, actually, you know, it's confectionery, it's soda that's causing such high sugar consumption. Um, and you're talking like there's no daily recommended amount. I mean, you're talking like people doing 10 times that on a regular basis without realizing it's not like a minor amount difference um and you know if you eat a bag of confection confectionery and like have a soda in like five minutes which lots of people do i mean your body's going to be all over the place um and you know we're talking now about a, a generation with anxiety depression all these things and sugar is as much a culprit as anything else um so we began to realize the scientific part of it a long time i guess before it was in before there was a sugar tax and before it was Jamie Oliver's TV show and things like that. Um, but then the big part of it was, oh, cool, I don't want to make something boring because we were two guys in our early 20s and we wanted to, I guess, stick it to the man. Um, and when we had the idea in the pub. So that lubricated, um, I guess, the creative part of it and us wanting to do something rebellious that spoke to people who were the same as us, who were kind of, opening the fridge and going, oh, I don't really want a glass of water. I don't really want a can of soda, nothing in between. And that's kind of the problem we want out to solve. Because there, there is a bit of a guilt attached to, as you say, sugar is so addictive. But then if you have a drink like that, there's a little bit of guilt which comes with it, right? It's a bit like, oh, I know I shouldn't really be having this, but... Certainly. And the young, the younger the generations go, I think that guilt is amplified. I think uh, we probably grew up where that was kind of, you know, our parents' generation drank it without knowing. And then we obviously kind of know, and like you say, have this like nagging guilt. And then younger generations, it's the same with alcohol as well. Just don't drink the same amount of sugary soda or alcohol um, because cult- culture's changing, right? Um, but, you know, that's not that being said, there's still just huge challenges of people um, be, being hooked on these things and, and feeling that uplift and feeling that, that lift. And particularly during coronavirus this year, people working from home, having a fridge full of beverages, if you're drinking five, six cans of soda a day, it's a habit that's really going to catch up with you fast. Um, whereas an easy switch, and again, there's lots of categories like this where you can switch your what you're eating or drinking easily. 
um, like popcorn versus crisps, you know, very simple switches that can help people. For us, it's like swap a can of soda for sparkling water and you can have 20 cans a day, you know, it's zero calorie. So that's kind of what, what we were trying to do. And so when you talk about the guilt, there's no guilt with our product, which hopefully once, you know, once you have, when you have the first can, it's like, oh, this isn't sweet. This is strange. I'm used to drinking sweet stuff. Then you have a second can and you're like, know what to expect. Then when you've had 10 cans, you're like, and your fridge is empty, you're like, where's it all gone? I need another 10 cans because I need something to do. I want that refreshment. I want that moment of opening a can at three o'clock in the afternoon. So I think that's what's exciting. And, and that's the challenge for us is winning over people who've been hooked on something for a long time, which is no easy feat. Hey there, Nathan here. While I've got your attention, I want to invite you to join a very special community we run here at Journey Further. It's called the Journey Further Book Club, and it's a learning community designed for time-pressured marketers. We condense down the insight from the best business books and share it with you so you can learn and get ahead without doing all of that reading. We host some exclusive events with the authors too. If that sounds good, just click the link in the show notes or head to journeyfurther.com and hit the book club link to sign up. It's completely free to join. See you there. Now back to Hugh. I remember when I first saw a can of it in a shop and bought a can of it because I was just like, that is just, well, it just stood out. I don't think I, I wasn't necessarily looking for, I was probably looking for a sugary drink. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I saw something new on the shelf, which... right. As you say, in such in such a crowded market with so many established brands, how did you go about getting to that point of, I guess, calling it ugly, but then the visual identity and the communications that wrap around it, that as I've revisited it to sort of speak with you, I've been like, that is so distinctive in the market than than, than what you'd expect. What, what was the approach you took to get to that point? It's a good question. And I guess there is that moment for a lot of people who picked it up thinking it's going to be a sugary beverage and uh, are shocked when they try it. And that was part of it. It's like, we don't, we want to win over people that are drinking soda. Uh, we don't just want to go after the small niche of people that are drinking healthier beverages and going to yoga studios because it doesn't solve the problem and the mission that we set out to solve. Um, so counterintuitively, we have a brand that looks like and stands out like other soda brands and it's fun, it's bright in your face. And that was always something we wanted to do. And I think, um, you spoke to Seth Godin recently and I'll reference one of his things. Um, which was the, the concept of the purple cow. And I think he, he talks about being on a train and you're going past fields and you go past a field of cows. And then the next field of cows, there's a purple cow. And if you asked to recall what you've seen, you'd remember the purple cow. So there's a little bit of that theory in Ugly. It's like, if you're looking at that shelf full of carbonated drinks that you've seen for 10, 15 years, what are you gonna spot and remember? Maybe it's that bright blue can called Ugly that stands out and maybe you've had a friend tell you, oh, I gave up soda and I started drinking this. And you remember those two things and you give it a go. And maybe then you never drink a can of soda again. That's always the idea. In reality, it's a lot harder than that. And there's a lot of people to win over. Um, the other part I'd reference on the design is that we wanted to be, we didn't want to be too serious about the message that I'm talking about here. And obviously I'm going to, I'm talking to you so we can go into the depth of it, but you know, it's a cartoon style. It's fun. It's, it's, you know, like Banksy, he does serious things, but with his tongue in his cheek and in a fun way. So there's a lot of street art inspiration in terms of the font style, the colors. We use cartoon characters because we felt cartoons can say things that I can't 
if I was a picture of me on the pack, it would seem a bit disingenuous. Um, so, you know, like Bart Simpson can say, eat my shorts and things like that, or like Stewie and Family Guy, we felt that our characters, and we're still just early in this process, but can, can begin to say serious things in a way that people go, ah, that's like, I, I get it. I like that something to think about rather than being preached to. And I think there's some amazing people out there, obviously, who are saying amazing things, but there's so much of it. Um, I don't think, I think brands have a different role to play than it being me preaching to people what they should eat and drink. Um, so and hopefully the brand can play that role a bit better. So it's all those things tied together around that concept of the ugly truth at the beginning I referenced. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, because I guess you, you have celebrity-endorsed mineral waters and things like that. And yeah, it's the, the, that accessibility of it is you'd, you'd be going against what you're trying to do if you communicated about it and or priced it and or priced it in a way which wasn't accessible. Yeah, I think I think people just, you know, when it comes to picking up a can of soda, a can of water, it should just be fun and refreshing. And you can make healthy food so serious and so expensive that I think it puts a lot of people off and they go, cool, I'll just go with the fun brands that I've known all my life because it's comforting. So why, why can't healthy products be at that price point and that kind of visual feel? Um, and th they're the brands that I love that nostalgia, right? I love thinking back to when I was growing up, the bag of crisps I had on the school bus home or the, you know, all that stuff. Like they're the brands that make you feel stuff. It's not the, the healthy food brands that, you know, you've been told to eat because someone says it's good for you, right? Like that, and I wanted to merge those two things. So that's always been the goal of like the aesthetic and the brand and the attitude of what we're trying to do. So I wanted to ask you, obviously, you guys started in the UK. I'm now speaking to you. You're sat in New York. Um, how did that move stateside come about for the business? And I guess what, what, what's it meant for the business and for you personally as a founder making that move? Yeah, it's, I, I've lived here two years now. So like two years, about a month ago. Uh, the second year living here has been very different to the first year for many reasons. We are, if anyone's listened to this, what is it? November 2020, right? So 10 months into coronavirus, pretty much, I haven't left New York this year. So very different um, experience and obviously face mask, et cetera, everywhere. Um, but like the learning curve has just been huge. And I think being a founder of a business is just like the best personal learning experience you can go on. And it can be extremely painful as well. And I think you only really get that growth when you're outside your comfort zone. So this is not being comfortable. Um, the work on moving here started a year or so even before I actually got on the plane with my with my suitcase. So, you know, it's three to four years hard work um, to get to where we are now. And really that we're only just getting going in the US, right? The size of the opportunity here is so big. But going back to, I guess, your initial question is why? It's like, we're just, we've always been ambitious. And I think I don't want to be too British and say, you know, we're not. Like, I think there's so many great British businesses. I wanted, you know, selfishly to be like, look, we can we can go the other way. I'd worked for two American companies in my career um, in the UK. Why can't the amazing ideas and amazing entrepreneurs in this country go, go the other way? So that was one reason for it, just like pure will and determination to do that. But also the mission that I said earlier is the same. I mean, the, the market for soda, this is soda's backyard, right? And we've gone even deeper into the backyard, right? We are now sold in Tennessee, which is where Mountain Dew's from, 
we're going right up against them in corner shop like corner shops and um gas stations in like the middle of america so really gone to the heart of soda and that was a big part of it for us and we had the opportunity through some of the investors who joined us to make it happen faster than i maybe initially thought um and then our team has just worked super hard and uh we're now running yeah, a global business with you know tesco's and sainsbury's in the uk kroger in the us d2c online sales in both countries but it stretched us massively i don't think um it's for everyone um and certainly like i push myself to the limit doing it um but the learning curve's been massive and obviously coronavirus has just changed so much about the last 12 months that this year has been a case of surviving and keep making sure the team is safe and happy and the the day-to-day of a founder has just been so different this year um trying to keep fires for and keep the thing going right and I'm, you know we're very lucky to be selling drinks not, not running a restaurant or a hotel or something like that so um yeah it's been one of those years as well on that front yeah completely and i guess another thing which which is obviously quite unique about you guys as a drinks company is that d2c side that you have set up that's that's not something that a big established player even with all the money in the world can seem to do very fast we 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 weirdly did it from day one in the UK and, and it, we, so we've been doing it for like four or five years at this point, which for beverage companies is, you know, many people have been scrambling over the last 12 months to, to get that up and running. But the reason was, is we had people messaging us going, you know, Oh, I've heard about your product. I'm in John O'Groats in Scotland. How can I get it? And it's like, well, we're not sold in every single supermarket yet. We're a month in, um, we need to have a web shop. Uh, and it's as simple as that. And then we had, you know, we had people in pretty much every town in the UK buying it. And we just went, wow, it's pretty amazing. And this is just from a few social media posts. And then we started investing into it. Well, then we developed our website, started investing in ads and everything else that comes with it. And um, now we've sold, we just sold our two millionth can in the US direct to consumer this year. Um, UK's massively been in, you know, 500, 600% year on year growth for us on that channel as well. Obviously people sat at home. It's a different, different environment for everyone, but you know, it's just fun to see people discover us on the internet. And like that wasn't available to brands even 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So we're meeting people who, you know, and for small companies in general, it's so good to be able to find small companies without having to be in mass retail. So we've loved that. Yeah, the barriers have been lowered so much. Um, I wanted to ask you, just going back to the US thing a little bit then, culturally, the differences between the UK and the US, has has, has that, I guess I'm thinking around sort of food and drink specifically, has that been hard to overcome? Has it been a harder harder pitch in the US than it has in the UK? Well, the the category we play in is is massive here already. So it's a multi-billion dollar category here, flavored sparkling waters with no sugar, no sweetener. So in the UK, we were kind of the first to go, but here we are disrupting a category that already exists with a better brand and better product. Um, so, you know, it's a $3 billion category here. So in, if in, in the UK, we have a challenge of telling people why it doesn't taste like a soda. And in the US, we have a challenge of four or five bigger competitors. Um, so both are equally difficult in many ways um but um culturally i think i mean the size of this country just means that there's always opportunity um that's something i've recognized and i think 
there's I mean I could talk all day about the differences between work in both countries and there's advantages and disadvantages to both and I'm I miss the UK but also I love working here if that makes sense like there's there's as a founder there's different bits to both but um you know brands get built in America and people get behind brands here like nothing else and there is a more so than British people uh no I think I think Brits get behind uh challenger brands I think here there's less of that kind of David versus Goliath mentality when it comes to branding I think in the UK it's kind of cool to pick your enemy and say you're up against someone else um, and in the US people just want great brands and and want that energy and fun and excitement so we're having to adjust slightly and that's a learning process for me as well I've been growing up in the UK and aspiring to all these challenger brands that I love um, but I think the US version of a challenger brand is slightly different it's around functionality it's around kind of the way you market and the tactics you use versus that kind of the way you verbalize you know, we're David, this is Goliath, we're taking down Goliath, which is, I think, quite often the case with styles of marketing in the UK. Um, I love both. And my personal opinion is that there's like tens of great UK food and beverage brands that could be massive in America. Just making that leap is, I, you know, even the big thing people don't think about is the time zone, right? Like that, that is the biggest thing is that when, when you're running a US business from the UK or you're running a UK business from the US, you and I've tried to do it, you just can't. You cannot be on top of everything all the time. And that just stretches you. Um, and like I was saying to you earlier, we have a team in California, a team in London. So really, like, it's ugly's going round the clock now, really. And that takes some adapting as well for the whole team. For every, every employee has had to adapt to that. Um, you have to know when to shut your laptop because the emails don't stop coming in. <laughs> and I think that... That's the sort of thing that I think people don't think about is like that mental pressure of like changing, you know, missing family and friends, uh, time zones, emails, things that get lost in translation. There's all these little intricacies that we've learned by doing and learned by making mistakes ultimately. So um, that's been interesting. Yeah, I can imagine. I, th I think with the whole working from home thing with coronavirus, there's been a lot of kind of over optimism in some respects of like oh well isn't this remote working so much more flexible and great but as you say for a lot of people it's like but now there's no switch off there's no yeah. there's no end point it's yeah i mean like i'm i don't know where you are but i'm yeah i'm at home here right and i've spent what like nine ten months working on ugly in this apartment and uh i could be anywhere in the world ultimately um i'm in new york to like meet meet people network you know fly around america but in reality could be anywhere um so that's been strange for everyone i think and we have you know right now we have team all around the world um team in south africa team in the uk team all in different time zones in america um so we're just like everybody just getting on with it right and we're touch wood hopeful that you know it's not going to go on for another two years and maybe another year of this, but we're kind of in a rhythm now, so we're getting there. So obviously there's there's a lot of work to, to still be done in America, but say in five years' time, ten years' time, will you be packing up your suitcase and, and flying somewhere else to, to crack another? It's a good question. Like, um, 
I do like living in America. I do also miss the UK. And, you know, um, I think with the world heading more remote, like there's going to be a lot of flexibility for people, hopefully, to live and work wherever they want. So I'm kind of hoping for a more flexible uh, location uh, lifestyle in future. Um, I feel like that commute, when I lived in London, the commute on the tube and, you know, that's that was grinding. That was a grind. And I know people are looking back forward to going back to normal but i'm not sure standing on the northern line like set at seven in the morning is anything anyone's craving to get back to so i don't know i hope things are a bit more flexible i think you know obviously i miss people in the office and collaborating and networking and serendipity um when it comes to yeah different mark i'd love to travel more see new markets launch new places um so we'll see how it goes I wanted to ask you a little bit. Obviously, your 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 product itself is 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 solving a very clear problem, that nutritional problem. But you guys are also uh, attached to some other really interesting um, initiatives. Um, I wanted to ask a bit about your partnership with Girl Up around gender inequality. How did that come about, and what does that mean for you guys as a business? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, we obviously I met a reference at the beginning, ugly truths, and um, us wanting to tell the ugly truth of our own soda with our drink. But then I think internally as a business, we wanted to do more than that, and so we felt that there were other ugly truths in the world. Um, and one of the things Joe and I did as two male, white male, you know, twenties co-founders were very conscious of early on was having a diverse workforce and diverse team to and for initially with our very first hires to balance us out um and then as we've grown you have to have a diverse diverse set of opinions and diverse to really build a business that's, that can appeal to as many people as we want to appeal to so the first thing we need we wanted to do was have a, a diverse team and so gender became something that was big to us initially and then to our you know i think our first four or five hires were all female employees and it just changed the organization in a positive way it just made us more balanced it made us have different opinions a different view on ugly which is for everyone the brand is for both genders it's not leaning either way um and i think it's just made a better culture uh, and i think it's still something we're striving towards but it became something we spoke about internally like we want a diverse diversity internally and then you look at our industry, you look at many industries, you look at um, founders trying to raise money. If you're male, you have advantages. If you're female, you don't. And that just felt something that our team was passionate about. Um, it felt like something our consumers would be passionate about as well. Um, so we reached out to Girl Up, who is a United Nations Foundation partner. Um, they loved what we were about. We said we're going to donate money from every can sold. It comes from Ugly's pocket. And so every time a consumer picks up a can of Ugly, they're donating to Girl Up. So we've donated, uh, I believe, over $50,000 this year uh, to Girl Up. And money goes, and the great thing about them is money goes to girls in the third world in places where it's hard to be a girl. So, for example, a recent, they've recently bought bikes in Malawi so girls could cycle to school instead of walking to school like a long distance away. Simple things like that because girls not having education, it has so many knock-on effects. But also in the UK and the US, they have university and college campus groups and girls in in these countries um where there's also inequality um also get you know different work experience or different travel experience or attend events and raise money themselves so it felt like something we could run through the whole company um and 
you know, we, we still need to do better on that front and we can be more, even more diverse than we are. But I do think Ugly has created a, an organization that is, that respects everyone's voices. And we wanted to do something more than just take on soda on the beverage front. So it's kind of how it all came together. Yeah, completely. And, and obviously yeah, an incredibly worthwhile course. And yeah, interesting to hear you say that almost made easier because you 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 dived into it straight away you tried to tackle the tackle the question up front as you started the business not 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 visit it later down the line and and try and sort of retrofit some good back into things and i still don't think we're getting it right and you know i'm uh you know we're, we're playing in a world as well that doesn't get it right so we're striving to do better ourselves, but we also have to, you know, some interact with different situations where and different lives and worlds where there's different opinions on this stuff. And so that's been a challenge. And I think, um, yeah, I'm very, I'm very proud that it's something we, we do. I think it's uh, companies should do more than just sell stuff. Um, so hopefully it's something people can get behind and um, it's a genuine commitment from us to continue to investing. And I mean, if we continue to grow at the rate we're growing at, we'll end up donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to that cause um, and generating a lot of awareness, hopefully as well. So yeah, they've been great partners. Um, and it's just, yeah, just something important. And I think there'll be other ugly truths as well. In the US, we really recently launched a Playwater product in partnership with Oceanic Global. So the ugly truth for us there is that uh, plastic is the biggest polluter uh, and the big soda companies are the biggest plastic polluters. Um, plastic gets into the ocean, it affects UV absorption, affects animals, wildlife, all that stuff. Um, why does why can't water be in a 100% recyclable can? So from every can sold from that product, we donate to Oceanic Global who work on plastic pollution in the ocean. And, and so there's other ugly truths and I think, um, yeah, it's, it's quite a nice platform on that front and it just gives us you know, it just makes it just makes a difference, and you know, we don't. It's not really designed for us to sell more drinks. It's just something that felt right for us to do, and I know our team's very proud of that stuff as well. Yeah, it's as you say, that ugly truth um, phrase is such a useful way into a conversation about all sorts of other things. I spoke to Lucy Siegel uh, a while ago, who who wrote a book called "Turning the Tide on Plastic." Uh, all about the, the 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 problems which you're speaking about, and it has really eye-opening, like massively changed the way that I consume things. Still oh. far from perfect, but like overnight, it, it changed the way I saw all the plastic on the shelf. It's crazy, and, and and I think it's something like people eat a credit credit card's worth of microplastics every week, and the plastics in the food supply chain, and in beverages, and in the water system. Um, so it's not just the plastic that washes up on the beach. It's the way plastic dissolves, the way it interacts with the water. And so much of that comes from bottled water. And, and that's why we did that. So we're still working out exactly how to balance it all together. But they felt like big causes that our team was passionate about and um, things we wanted to do. So uh, yeah, pretty excited about continuing to grow those partnerships. Hugh, I've just got three final questions for you. Go for it. So firstly, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? Other than Father Christmas, um, I think... What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> Is that... Yeah, sorry for anyone listening. No, that's just my opinion. Um, I think I used to believe that I was indestructible on a, on a work front, on like a, I can push myself and not look after myself and I can do that forever. And 
I am a living example of someone who did it for like eight, nine years and then it just broke. Um, and now I have to look after myself. And I, and I don't think we're taught that at school. I don't think we're taught how to look after ourselves. I don't think we're taught personal finance. I don't really think we're taught proper physical health. Like you'll play sports, but you're not taught how to work out or eat properly. And I just think that's, you know, or meditation or how to read, like how to get a reading habit and all these things that, you know, just burnout is a real thing. And I, and I used to believe it wasn't a thing for me, but it hundred percent is. And I, anyone listening that's like, oh, it's never going to hit me. At some point it will, and it will crop on you, up on you invisibly. Um, and so now I really have to look after myself. And there's always, always that story people talk about where you're on a plane, they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first so you can look after others. Um, and my career is a great example of that, where I wasn't looking after myself, and therefore it beca- I became a less effective leader a couple of years ago, and still kind of going through that process of learning how to deal with it. So that's a that's a big thing that I used to believe that I don't anymore. And what what were the biggest things that you had to change in your sort of relationship with 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 work then? I think it's a combination of work and outside of work. And it's like if you're going to be doing, if you want to have big goals and achieve a lot, you have to create an environment that allows you to do it. You can't be going out and having five pints at the pub every night. Not that I was doing that, but you can't have a hangover if you want to lead a group of people and energize people. You have to sleep properly. You have to eat properly. Um, you you ha- you can't take your stress and put that onto others if you want a happy environment. And so I have to take responsibility for that, which means working out, having a bit more discipline when it comes to things like what I eat, what I drink. Um, and it kind of sounds boring, but like life gets better when you feel in control of those things. And I think I, I just I was just dwelling on it the other day that you're not taught any of this stuff right at school. Like I was taught how to do algebra and like ridiculous maths that I've never even looked at since and I've literally crammed for like a one hour exam like probably crammed two hours before but like no one ever sat sat us down and said this is what a mortgage is or this is this is a 40 minute workout routine that you should do every day for the rest of your life and this is what you know (laughs) none of that stuff and I think it catches up with you if you don't learn it and you go to university in the UK and you're taught how to drink 10 pints but you're not you're not really learning those skills that five, 10 years down the line, because I was a CEO at what, 24, 25. So I was never really, I went straight from like being a student into that. And like, you, you have to adjust the way you live. And, and um, I think that's been a big learning for me. Secondly, Hugh, if this wasn't your mission, what would be? No, it's funny you mentioned earlier kids selling sweets in the playground. I think um, one of the things I was really passionate about was young enterprise when I was at school and pushing, um, I guess giving kids that opportunity to be entrepreneurial. I think um, in the UK particularly, I get pretty passionate about people following, you know, I think when you're like, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, you're very, you can get pushed in the wrong direction and you cannot have the right encouragement or maybe not find the thing that clicks for you at school. And I think for me, I'd be very passionate about, I don't know, like inspiring is the wrong word, but like giving people of that age the opportunity to try things if you're selling sweets in a black market on the playground you have a talent that probably isn't going to be unlocked in an algebra class um but also you're probably going to get told off for doing it and i there's i think creating i would be passionate about creating a an environment or like working in that space and um helping i guess kids 
find potential outside of kind of regular careers i think is what i yeah. would, i think what yeah. i'd be really excited about yeah interesting more like coaching coaching skills and nurturing skills rather than just forcing knowledge 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 yeah. on, on, i get that's why i get passionate about the uk right so i just think so many creative people so much great culture in the uk and now the way the uk is going economically which is not what i would want to happen but kind of going to need to punch above its weight on all those things even more but if you have an education system that just creates robots it's never going to happen um and i think young enterprise for me was a massive moment in my life when i did that you know i did all right at school so it's not like i was struggling with schoolwork. but when i did young enterprise it was like cool create a business from scratch make some money it clicked i was obsessed with it and then ever since then i've known what i wanted to do and i think lots of kids don't get that opportunity to you know, if you said to those kids, make as much money as you can selling sweets, and that is, now it's no longer a black market, it'd be different, right? And maybe they'd get coaching and learn skills, and they'd hone it even more, and maybe then you find the next Richard Branson or whoever, right? Or the, you know, the guy from Gymshark, who's from my town as well, or pretty much near where I grew up as well. So, like, I just, that's what I would be passionate about. Because, you know, the UK having Gymshark or Brewdog or well, it's, that's what we can create um, if people are given the chance to. Yeah. Um, and finally, Hugh, I know you're you're a bit of an avid reader. Um, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further Book Club to read, what would it be? Oh, there's so many good ones. Um, the book I probably gift. There's two two books. Can I say two? You can. Uh, I'll give you two. I'll give two. The two books I've gifted the most. Uh, one is The Obstacle Is the Way by Ryan Holiday, and the other is Give and Take by Adam Grant. Um, the Obstacle of the Way is like it's a really kind of simple overview of Stoicism, which I used to think was like kind of a a grim, miserable, stiff upper lip kind of attitude. But actually, what life is full of obstacles. Like it's goes without saying that whatever the plan is isn't going to happen. Whatever that is, life. You know, this year is a great example. I think that book teaches you how to assess and approach obstacles. And quite often in, in Ugly's journey, the obstacle that's come or the problem that's come has actually led to a better solution or a better um, outcome. And so I think that book's great. And then Give and Take is a really interesting take on being a giver and giving your time, giving your advice, and getting that balance right and how get, being a giver can be successful. And I think... Uh, since I read that book, I can't remember who recommended it to me. I think it was this guy who was a surf instructor and he'd been teaching Heston Blumenthal, the chef to surf the week before. And Heston had said it's his favorite book. So that's how I got yeah. told about it. Um, but really, it's just, you know, all, I think one of the things with Ugly is that we've always given our time for other people and helped other founders out or helped other people out without asking for anything in return. And no joke things come back they come back when you least want them or and you don't ask for them and they come back five years later ten years later and it's happened so many times for us um so giving without receiving i think is a big learning so those two books i think are the ones i would recommend thank you they sound like great recommendations and yeah i'll i'll uh, i'll be passing them on to the community hugh it's been a pleasure speaking with you finding all about ugly and a, a really really valuable mission and powerful mission that you're on and yeah i wish you guys all all the best in years to come thanks nathan and thanks for having me thank you for listening through to the very end there i hope you enjoyed that 
I would love to hear your thoughts on the conversation, so do drop me a line. It's podcast at journeyfurther.com. And of course, please hit subscribe to stay up to date with future episodes. And if you were to leave a review in your podcast app, that would make me incredibly happy. I'll see you soon.